This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Season 10 of the Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information about their programs and residencies, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Art is hard work. If anyone has ever told you otherwise, then they either aren't artists themselves or they've never spent a lot of time with an artist. Sure, it's possible, perhaps even probable, that there are artists who can daintily etch a little woodcut or gently pour acrylic paint atop a canvas and voila, all done with nary a bead of sweat dampening their foreheads. But most of the time, it's serious stuff. Sketching, preparing, arranging equipment, even power tools. Mixing pigment, cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. You're suddenly covered with marble dust, fingers smudged with charcoal or speckled with oil paint, smelling of turpentine and of your own exertions. And in the most extreme of cases, yeah, maybe you have had to contort yourself into just the right position to be able to chisel off the last fragment, to strain your arm up to daub that last bit of paint. Woof. And now you are tired, to be sure. Probably working alone in your studio all day, no help, toiling away. That's probably how most people get things done. But did one of the most famous painters of the Renaissance complete one of his largest projects, and a very physically taxing one at that, all by his lonesome too? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. Welcome to a new season, season 10, in which we are going to dig deep on some great art historical facts and fictions. In today's episode, we are getting into Michelangelo and the painting of the Sistine Chapel. Was it really as dramatic as it was made out to be with Michelangelo toiling alone on his back for years straight? This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. I've been discussing the idea of the tortured artist for years now. My second episode of this podcast, all about the death of Van Gogh, actually touched on this quite a bit, because we love thinking of artists as moody, temperamental, and solitary. And though Van Gogh, for me, will always seem to scratch that mythological itch best, the painter and sculptor Michelangelo Buonarroti seems like his Renaissance equivalent. A bit of a loner, prone to doing everything himself because he didn't trust others, a perfectionist needing things to go his own way, so everyone else needed to back off. This emotional profile of Michelangelo was established not long after the artist himself passed middle age, making it into the big time with exactly the project we're discussing today, his painting of the Sistine Chapel's ceiling. So get those shot glasses ready, because it's Vasari time! 
And for new listeners, I have this imaginary drinking game where I'm assuming that there's at least one listener out there who is doing a shot every time I mention Giorgio Vasari, the big daddy of art historical biography. So, according to Vasari, who was one of the first people to publish a biographical sketch of Michelangelo, the temperamental artist had such a rough start on the Sistine ceiling that he threw a tantrum, locking the doors to the chapel and refusing to let any of his assistants in there to help him continue with this massive project. Another early biographer, Ascanio Candivi, claimed that the ceiling was painted, quote, without any help whatever, not even someone to grind his colors for him, unquote. So both of Michelangelo's biographers went big to make sure that he was seen as this singular, solitary master. And then this idea went even deeper into our cultural subconscious with the help of Irving Stone's extremely popular biographical novel from 1961, The Agony and the Ecstasy, which was later made into an equally popular and award-nominated film in 1965, starring Charlton Heston as a moody Michelangelo and Rex Harrison as a moody Pope Julius II. You'll note that Irving Stone was also the man who wrote the biographical novel Lust for Life, that also idealized Van Gogh as that perfectly tortured genius. So it is interesting to think how Stone single-handedly became a huge mythmaker for the art world. But are these visions actually accurate? Was grumpy Michelangelo condemned to work alone, lying on his back, with paint and sweat dripping into his eyes, into the late hours of every night for four years? To understand the facts and fictions of this oft-told tale, we first should discuss the Sistine Chapel itself to get a sense of the scale of Michelangelo's commission for the ceiling. The Sistine, as we currently know it, was built by the decree of Pope Sixtus IV, who was, in fact, Pope Julius II's uncle. And Sixtus, by the way, is where we get the name Sistine. Sixtus wanted a new chapel built on the site where an earlier, smaller chapel had once stood, hoping to build a bigger and more useful space that could function as a center for prayer and for official church business like its famed use as the location of the papal conclave for the choosing of a new pope. Sixtus hired the Florentine military architect Baccio Pontelli in 1477 to begin construction on a design meant to exactly match the actually kind of funky dimensions reported in the Old Testament as those of the Temple of Solomon in ancient Jerusalem meaning that the finished chapel is twice as long as it is high and three times long as it is wide. It was, and is, a stunning building with a lot of wall space, as you can imagine. So after the building was completed in 1483, many of Italy's most sought-after Renaissance artists were commissioned to paint frescoes featuring scenes from the life of Christ on one of its long sides and the life of Moses on the other. A bunch of big names worked to beautify Sixtus's new chapel. Pietro Perugino, the leader of the Fresco Project, who also worked alongside Sandro Botticelli, Cosimo Rosselli, Luca Signorelli, Piero di Cosimo, and Domenico Ghirlandaio, who would eventually go on to train none other than Michelangelo in his studio. With that roster of creators, you can imagine that the frescoes on the walls of the Sistine are awesome. And they truly are. The ceiling, though, was fine, I guess standard, actually. 
It was produced with a simple design of a starry night sky, though this one was produced as lushly as possible with the use of very expensive ultramarine pigments and gold leaf. But still, a starry sky, a rather calm envisioning of the heavens above. And who knows, maybe that would have done the job handsomely and we would still be here talking about Perugino's frescoes, except that the ceiling began cracking about 30 years later. Rome, you see, is kind of like Washington, D.C., in that the city was built upon some super swampy terrain, and the literal shifting ground beneath the Sistine led to some structural issues. Though the building was sturdily built and was able to survive the strain, the ceiling itself, held up by these shifting walls, wasn't quite so lucky. So large cracks began to splinter across the vault, and though the ceiling itself was bolstered, repaired, and plastered over, the appearance obviously suffered with the previously blue and gold heavens marred by this large white plaster scar. In 1504, Julius II was elected pope, and as we have discussed in a past episode of Art Curious, that's episode number 33 about the rivalry between Michelangelo and Raphael if you want to go back, one of his goals was to arrange for a number of major building and renovation projects across the Vatican and across Rome, including the complete overhaul of St. Peter's Basilica, the epicenter of the Roman Catholic Church. He campaigned to beautify and aggrandize Rome, and thus himself, because this guy had vision, no bones about it. And as part of that vision, he wanted to be sure that he was commissioning the most stunning works of art, painting, sculpture, and architecture that the world had yet seen. So working with the land's tip-top artists, as his uncle Sixtus IV had done, was a key to making this happen. Julius's connection to Michelangelo began with a commission for the Pope's epic tomb, a monument to be filled with life-size statues created out of expensive Carrara marble. Michelangelo's connection to sculpture was a lifelong one, a connection he claimed as part of his own self-mythologizing. According to the artist in discussions with Vasari, his childhood wet nurse, who also served as his nanny, was descended from a long line of stone carvers, and it was from her family, he said, that his interest in sculpture grew. As he noted to Vasari, quote, Along with the milk of my nurse, I received the knack of handling chisel and hammer, with which I make my figures, unquote. And it is indeed via sculpture that Michelangelo became famous, having been celebrated far and wide by 1504 as the preternaturally talented maker of the Vatican Pieta and of his statue of David in the city of Florence, Michelangelo's hometown. So when Julius came calling, summoning Michelangelo for the prestigious tomb commission, he was thrilled, and he got to work designing a magnificent, imposing structure for Julius's final resting place which ultimately would have included 40 life-size figures over which he toiled for nearly a year. But if you listened to episode number 33, then you know already that this tomb project didn't exactly go as planned. Michelangelo eventually did create a much smaller, hugely scaled-down version of the tomb almost a half-century later, and much with the help of his assistants. But the grand project it was supposed to be, it was not. 
And part of that was due to the fact that Julius opted to stop the tomb project and diverted its funds to the massive redesign of St. Peter's, as well as to fund several small-scale wars that he fought to reclaim power over several papal states. And Michelangelo was mad. He had spent all of this time toiling, planning, and shipping marble back and forth from Carrara on his own dime, or florin, and he was devastated at having the commission pulled out from under him. So upset was he that, for practically the rest of his life, he referred to this project as the so-called tragedy of the tomb. He left Rome, returned to Florence, and intended never to return. But Julius had other plans, and was unwilling to let Michelangelo go. Though he didn't want to move full speed ahead with the tomb project anymore, he did have a few other ideas in mind, and Michelangelo was grudgingly lured back. After yet another failed project under Julius's purview, this time for an 11-foot-tall bronze sculpture of the Pope to be placed in the city of Bologna, another fascinating story for another episode of Art Curious, Michelangelo, always a testy sort, was rightfully grouchy about working for the Pope. But it was the Pope. What could he do, just say no to one of the most powerful patrons in Europe? He needed to work. He needed commissions, because commissions brought money. And money was a good thing to have for, you know, living and stuff. And in 1508, the Pope came with another commission, which was less of a request and more like an official order. I want you, Michelangelo, Julius said, to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Coming up next, we're digging deep into fresco alongside Michelangelo and his helpers. Stay with us after a quick word from our sponsors. And remember, by purchasing from our sponsors, you not only grab a really good deal for yourself, but you help keep us afloat. Thanks for listening. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. If you've ever wondered about paleontology, about primates, about Pluto, about anything really, then you should sign up for Wondrium. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. Wondrium has incredible content with answers to millions of the whys, hows, wheres, whats, whose, and whence that you've ever heard or ever had. Wondrium is my favorite streaming service, and I know that you are going to love it too. Recently, I haven't been able to stop thinking about this new course I've been taking on Wondrium called The Secret World of Espionage. 
because we all know that facts are sometimes way better than fiction. And this course allows you to uncover real stories about real spies throughout history. That is the great thing about Wondrium. It allows me to make such great use of my time to both entertain myself and to keep my brain active and learning. With Wondrium, all of their videos are academically comprehensive, relentlessly entertaining, and all of them are led by engaging experts. And if you don't have time to watch, the Wondrium app has a wonderful feature that allows us to listen along to the content as if it were a podcast. I know you are going to love Wondrium too. So as always, I have arranged a very special limited time offer for my listeners, a free month trial of unlimited access. To get this offer, sign up now through my special URL, wondrium.com art. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash art. Wondrium.com art. This episode is brought to you by Storyblocks. Storyblocks is the first unlimited download subscription-based provider of stock video and audio with over 100,000 customers in the TV and video production industry, from NBC to MTV to hobbyists looking to enhance their video projects and productions. Today's audiences require compelling video storytelling to win their attention, but making a video can be expensive and really time-consuming. Storyblocks makes it possible to keep up with the growing demand for modern video content so you can bring all your stories to life and stop sacrificing your vision due to time, budget, or resources. Their royalty-free, demand-driven video library is being constantly updated and optimized with templates for use in After Effects and Premiere Pro, and it even includes music, images, sound effects, and more to give you everything you need to bring your stories to life. Assets are royalty-free, so you can use your downloaded content anywhere for commercial and personal use. I recommend trying out their unlimited all-access plan that gives you unlimited downloads of more than 1 million assets in their library, so you can create more and spend less without sacrificing quality. And what's even cooler is that Storyblocks is actively working to change the face of stock footage with more diverse and inclusive content in their library to help creators tell their most unique and authentic stories. Their program, Restock, is their commitment to increase representation in stock media by hiring creators from marginalized communities to create content that is more reflective of the diverse world we live in. To learn more, please visit storyblocks.com slash artcurious. That's storyblocks.com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. Famously, Michelangelo balked at the commission of the Sistine Ceiling. Sculpture was in his heart and in his blood, and he just didn't feel like he was a very good painter, let alone someone well-versed in the notoriously tricky medium of the fresco. Michelangelo didn't want to take the job, but when the Pope tells you to jump, you've got to ask how high. So he signed the contract and gave in to the fact that he now had several intense years of work ahead of him. And to manage it, he had to put together a solid team of assistants to help him bring it all together. Assistants. Michelangelo needed assistants. So get ready for a quick deep dive into Fresco, because it's worth a little sidebar here to confirm just how treacherous it can be to pull off. Just ask Leonardo da Vinci about that one, by the way, and how that worked out for his Last Supper. Hint, hint, for a future episode this season of the podcast. All right, onward to Fresco, sometimes referred to as Buon Fresco or True Fresco. 
To make a fresco involves painting on a very thin layer of wet plaster, typically called by the Italian term of intonaco. As the intonaco dries, a chemical reaction takes place that locks in any pigment placed onto it, essentially hardening into the surface of the wall or the ceiling being decorated. Fresco was especially popular in Southern Europe during the Renaissance, as well as long before and long after, because it was not only cheap and made with essentially really easily available materials, like lime derived from limestone and sand mixed with water, but the region's dry, hot weather during the summertime meant that plaster could dry fast, and thus, frescoes could be made quickly. But that same quality also meant that it had to be made quickly, with artists painting into the intonaco fast before the intonaco dried. Because once it dried, it was done. And if it didn't look good, then you have to chip it all off and start the whole fresco process over. Fresco, you see, is not for the faint of heart, and you've got to be prepared to pull it off right. So an artist needed to make sure to have their cartoons, meaning their preparatory drawings or sketches, not the Saturday morning animation, had to have them ready to go for each day's specific work, called the giornata, from the Italian word for day. Upon the beginning of the workday, a fresh patch of intonaco would be laid, and then the cartoon would be placed atop it, where it could then be traced by a knife, a stylus, or another tool that would scratch the outline of the design into the plaster. Sometimes, another method, called pouncing, would be used, where the artist or assistant would poke these tiny little holes along the outlines of figures or items in a cartoon, and would then dab at the holes with this small porous bag of charcoal dust, which would leave these little dots to be connected to form the design on the plaster. And then the painting, the adding of color, would then be done. Consider, though, that paint did not come in tubes or pots or buckets, really, at this point. The whole paint-in-tubes thing, by the way, was one of the revolutions that brought forth the Impressionists, a revolution in itself, centuries later. Paint, at this point, needed to be made by the artist or their assistants from a variety of ground plants and minerals like saffron, cinnabar, lapis lazuli, and malachite. No easy feat in and of itself. The preparing of paints alone was a huge and truly important job. So, between the planning, the drawing, the mixing and grinding of pigments, the chiseling, the transferring of cartoons, the actual fresco painting, and dealing with any errors or mistakes, you can imagine that lots of people needed to be a part of a fresco project, especially one as gigantic as the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, measuring from about 131 feet long by 43 feet wide, or the equivalent of more than 5,000 square feet. Is it any surprise, then, that not terribly long after Michelangelo signed the contract for the commission, he jumped immediately to securing help? Not at all. According to surviving documents and by Vasari's accounts, Michelangelo put his oldest friend, a fellow artist named Francesco Granacci, in charge of recruiting a team of assistants. Granacci and Michelangelo had met while both were apprenticing in the workshop of Ghirlandaio, himself a Sistine Chapel artist famed for his works in fresco, and who subsequently taught both boys the tricky trade, though neither Michelangelo nor Granacci went on to become professional fresco artists themselves. Granacci mainly painted banners and backdrops for theater performances, 
But, according to Vasari, he was loyal and humble. A, quote, merry fellow whom Michelangelo could trust and whom, conversely, could deal with Michelangelo's mercurial spirits. By October 1508, Granacci had assembled the whole team, which included four experienced Florentine fresco artists named Bastiano da Sangallo, Giuliano Bugiardini, Agnolo di Donino, and Jacopo de Tedesco. Joining them was a plasterer, Pietro Rosselli, who was also tasked with chiseling away the original damaged star-spangled ceiling, and rounding out the group was another sculptor, Pietro Urbano, who had previously worked with Michelangelo in Bologna. Cloistered away in Michelangelo's small and rather spartan studio, these eight men prepared themselves for the monumental task of completely remaking the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. But before they did that, they needed to determine how to even reach the ceiling in the first place. The vaulted ceiling of the Sistine Chapel soars about 68 feet off the ground, or the equivalent of a six and a half story building. Obviously, it required some kind of scaffold, but the scaffold needed to be created in a way that wouldn't affect the chapel's usage as a place of prayer and religious services. And that was one of Julius's non-negotiables, that the chapel continued to be in use even while it was being renovated. So Julius asked Donato Bramante, the architect, to design some scaffolding that would reach the ceiling but keep the floor of the chapel open. And Bramante delivered, but his design stipulated that the scaffolding would basically be a set of platforms suspended by ropes anchored into the ceiling meaning that holes would have to be drilled into Michelangelo's work surface to support the platforms. No, 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 Michelangelo said. That won't do. So he took it into his own hands, and Michelangelo, it would turn out, would be an accomplished architect himself, by the way. He designed a scaffolding system that functioned like interconnected bridges anchored near the chapel's arched windows and braced against the walls which left the ceiling free of any holes and markings. It covered about half of the chapel, and thus only required moving halfway through the project, which was a huge time saver. And you can see Michelangelo's brief sketches for this scaffolding, as well as an artist's rendition of it from a virtual reality simulation of the Sistine Chapel by Epic Games, all of which is included in the blog post for today's episode. Most fascinatingly, and here's where we bust another Michelangelo myth, these bridge-like platforms were designed to be held approximately seven feet below the ceiling, meaning that Michelangelo and his assistants would be able to stand, craning their necks upward and their arms raised over their heads, to complete that day's giornata. Just below the platform, Michelangelo's assistants suspended large canvas sheets so that the drops of paint and chunks of chiseled plaster would be caught thereby protecting church officials who were congregating in the chapel at any given time. And it also provided Michelangelo with privacy, and thus avoiding the prying eyes of the Pope, Bramante, and Raphael, among many others. Next, Team Sistine gets down to business. And there's a little bit of a learning curve to that business. So come right back.
This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by BetterHelp. There have truly been times in my life where I've needed some assistance to figure out what I wanted from life and how to find the happiness I deserved. And that's why I turned to BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is here to help you too. With BetterHelp, a professional can assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist with whom you can begin communicating in less than 48 hours. And it is so convenient because you can connect from wherever you are in a safe and private online environment, and you can message, call, or video chat with your therapist, all instead of commuting somewhere and sitting uncomfortably in a waiting room. And BetterHelp also makes it easy to find the right therapist for you. Whether you're looking for help with depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, LGBT matters, self-esteem, or anything, and you don't have to limit yourself to someone who works near your home. Believe me, I've used BetterHelp and it is so easy. And I loved my counselor I connected with. And even if I didn't, it would have been so easy and free to change counselors if I wanted. It's confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. And financial aid is available. BetterHelp is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It is professional counseling done securely. And check this out. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As an Art Curious listener, you're important to me. And so I want you to start living a happier life today. By visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp, you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling by visiting betterhelp.com artcurious. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's at betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot artcurious. I have had a little bit of trouble sleeping in the past year, so I have needed to find something that will help me manage my sleep problems. And that is when I turn to Feels, because Feels is a better way to feel better. Feels is a premium CBD that will help to keep your head clear and feel your best. It is hassle-free and delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce my stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness, all without hangover or addiction. I place just a few drops of Feels CBD oil underneath my tongue and I can feel the difference in my anxiety levels within minutes. I have been using Feels' standard tinctures to find the relief and the relaxation that I so want. And the thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is important and everyone's dose is different. And in fact, Feels is great because they offer a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience so that you can find your perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the right and best use of your CBD. Joining the Feels monthly membership also makes your self-care easy because you can save time and money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any point. Become a member today by going to feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash artcurious and you will get 40% off your first three months with free shipping. That is F-E-A-L-S dot com slash artcurious to become a member and get 40% automatically taken off your first three months with free shipping. Feels dot com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. The actual beginning of the Fresco project was a bit rocky, to say the least. Michelangelo and his team began painting the ceiling on the east end of the chapel, near the entrance, painting a scene of the biblical Great Flood from the book of Genesis. Not terribly long after the commission, a portrait of that panel grew moldy because the plaster mixture was off and contained too much water. 
an error that was purportedly discovered by the assistant Giuliano Bugiardini. So off came the moldy part of the panel, chipped away, and the new fresco begun, a process that totaled almost three months of lost work, according to some estimates. Though this was a regrettable sidestep, it does allow us art historians, both professional and amateur, a little hint at Michelangelo's team at work, because comparisons of the painted figures has yielded a theory that only two of the figures, an old man carrying a younger one, often thought to be a father supporting his dead or ill son, were actually painted by Michelangelo himself. The others, most historians agree, were painted by Michelangelo's assistants. But any good storyteller knows that the plot about a struggling artist toiling all by his lonesome is such a good dramatic hook, way more than a plot swirling around a stable artist working in tandem with his teammates. And as we have discussed time and time again on Art Curious, Giorgio Vasari often liked to spice up his stories for the reader's interest. In his recounting of the moldy flood panel, Vasari writes that Michelangelo had a fit locking the doors to the Sistine and refusing to let his assistants back in, opting instead to finish the chapel project, the whole thing, by himself. But this appears to be Vasari engaging in some early myth-making about Michelangelo, who was reportedly one of his idols. Vasari's story, while making Michelangelo out to be a bit of a tyrant, which may have been true, also makes the artist seem much more magical, a superhuman figure opting to toil alone to complete an almost impossible project. It's a romantic thought, and truly so much more interesting. But it's not true. We do know that Jacopo del Tedesco left Rome in January of 1509. Whether he quit or was fired or left for another reason entirely is up for debate. But it is clear that it wasn't the happiest of partings, as he apparently grumbled about Michelangelo all over town upon his return to Florence. He was quickly replaced by another assistant for Michelangelo's team, a man named Jacopo Torni. The point about Jacopo del Tedesco's departure is an important one because it presents what would ultimately become a pattern with the Sistine Project. For whatever reason, by the end of 1509, nearly all of Michelangelo's original group of assistants had dispersed, leaving Michelangelo to lament in a letter to his brother that he, quote, had no friends of any sort, unquote. Michelangelo was nothing if not a little bit prickly, and certainly super exacting about his wants and his requirements, so it's not impossible to imagine that the assistants may have grown tired of him and his grueling fresco scheme. But here's the important thing. If assistants left, they were then replaced with new helpers. After Bastiano de Sangallo, Giuliano Bugiardini, and Agnolo de Donino exited the picture, they were replaced by Giovanni Trignoli and Bernardino Zacchetti, fresco painters from Reggio dell'Emilia in northern Italy. And not everyone left, mind you. Pietro Urbano, who was Michelangelo's sculptor pal, apparently stayed on for the duration of the project. A final point about Michelangelo and his assistants. Remember that at the very beginning of the Sistine Chapel Commission, Michelangelo wasn't thrilled about the project because he essentially felt like he was neither a good painter nor someone skilled in fresco. 
when, after more than two years, the first half of the chapel ceiling was revealed to the general public, his efforts were met with incredible praise. Michelangelo's biographer, Ascanio Candivi, wrote that, quote, The opinion and expectation which everyone had of Michelangelo brought all of Rome to see this thing, this new and wonderful manner of painting, unquote. In short, Michelangelo and his team killed it. And knowing that people were digging what he was doing was a major boon to the artist's fragile ego. He grew more confident, and at the same time, he became far more comfortable with his fresco techniques, because working on something for hours upon end for literal years will surely make you an expert really quickly. It's like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule, which theorizes that you need to spend that many hours practicing something before you can truly master it. Michelangelo may not quite have reached 10,000 hours of working time by late 1510 or early 1511, but there's no doubting that he had not only become more skillful, but also a faster worker. The learning curve for Fresco was long past, and Michelangelo and his assistants were able to complete the remaining frescoes on the ceiling of the chapel by the fall of 1512, which was described by Vasari as, quote, such to make everyone astonished and dumb, unquote. The Sistine ceiling was a hit, and though it was a bit of a slog at certain points, the great Michelangelo never toiled lonely and abandoned, and certainly not lying flat on his back. We've separated fact from fiction in Michelangelo's story today, but we are still left with one question. Where does this myth of Michelangelo's great suffering in the name of the Sistine Project come from? Interestingly, it partially stems from Michelangelo himself. In 1509, he included a sonnet in a letter to his friend Giovanni de Pistoia, which presented a litany of ailments produced from his work in the Sistine. In translation, it reads, quote, I've already grown a goiter from this torture, hunched up here like a cat in Lombardy, or anywhere else where the stagnant waters poison. My stomach's squashed under my chin, my beard's pointing at heaven, my brain's crushed in a casket, my breast twists like a harpy's. My brush above me all the time dribbles paint so my face makes a fine floor for droppings. My haunches are grinding into my guts, my poor ass strains to work as a counterweight. Every gesture I make is blind and aimless. My skin hangs loose below me, my spine's all knotted from folding over itself, I'm bent taut as a Syrian bow. Because I'm stuck like this, my thoughts are crazy, perfidious tripe. Anyone shoots this badly through a crooked blowpipe. My painting is dead. Defend it for me, Giovanni. Protect my honor. I am not in the right place. I am not a painter." Unquote. Best of all is the metaphorical cherry atop this Sunday. A little sketched self-portrait presenting the artist standing his head tipped back awkwardly, and his arms straining upward to paint a delightfully cartoonish figure, the Saturday morning version this time around, who is hilariously chubby and donning spiky hair. Michelangelo himself busts this myth about himself, presenting a picture of the artist standing while at work. It surely wasn't a comfortable experience, and to be fair, he seems to have liked presenting himself as a miserable wretch. But this wretch absolutely worked with others to bring his incredible artwork, and a history-making one at that, to fruition.
Coming up next time on Art Curious, we are returning to one of the most lauded and popular artists of the 20th century, who was also one of the most popular female artists of all time. Are her paintings actually risque interpretations of female anatomy? We are exploring fact and fiction this season, and this one is a theory that just won't quit. That episode is coming up in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. And huge thanks to Jessica Wolschlager for her awesome research and writing help with this episode. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcast services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Subscribe now to their new show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Season one is available now on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means that you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support. To find donation links and for more details about our show, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. And we are on social media. You can find us most places at Art Curious Pod. Check back with us soon as we explore the facts and fictions of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. Thank you.